Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. Uh, and we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down Surrender, the eighth episode of season three of Star Trek Picard. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for Surrender. Making herself comfortable in the captain's chair, Vatic assumes control over the Titan's systems. She sends her minions to find Jack and brutally kill any hapless crew member they come across. The bridge crew, including Seven and Captain Shaw, are powerless to do anything since they would not be able to overpower the heavily armed changelings. Using the ship's comms, Vatic tells Jack that if he does not surrender within 10 minutes, she will execute a bridge crew member. In another part of the ship, Jack tells Beverly and Picard about his superpowers that allow him to take over another person's body. Sydney confirms this claim. With only a minute left before a bridge crew member is to be executed, Jack takes control of the Bajoran, Lieutenant Mura, who attempts to input Picard's code into a computer to regain control of the ship. However, Vadek sees what is happening before the code can take effect. She then executes the Vulcan, Lieutenant Tavine. It now appears their only hope lies with Data if the android can take over the ship. In engineering, Jordy informs Picard Data appears to be involved in a losing battle with his brother Lord to achieve dominance within the positronic brain. Still, since Data is their only hope, Jack goes to the bridge with a device in hand that he tells Vedic he will detonate and kill himself if she does not allow everyone else to go free. Vedic orders the bridge crew to go into the ready room. However, Seven decides to stay with Jack. Within the world of Data's potasotronic brain, Data is quickly losing consciousness to Lore. Data seems to accept his fate as he gifts Lore with items that evoke special memories from his life experiences. These items include a Sherlock Holmes deerskin hat and pipe, a TNG era tricorder, a miniature hologram of former colleague Tasha Yar, a deck of cards, and his cat Spot. Lore seems to have beaten his brother when Data appears to disappear from existence. However, since Lore is unable to dispense with Data's memories, he becomes Data and Lore fades away. In a detention cell on the Shrike, Riker and Troy appear to accept their dire fate. As Troy attempts to tend to her husband's wounds, affectionate teasing turns into an unresolved hurt between the two concerning the death of their son, Thad. The two come to a new understanding of each other's pain, strengthening their relationship. They also both admit they are anxious to leave their isolated home on Nepenthe and move to a city to be among more people again. You know, I really liked Nepenthe. That was one of the few episodes from season one I liked. But I also enjoyed them having a, a good laugh about how 
they were there for another reason. And now they just would be happy to leave. Right, right. (laughs) Just when a changeling comes to the cell, seemingly with ill intent, Worf kills it. Good, good, good. Worf is a killing machine. (laughs) Meanwhile, Rafi has downloaded intel from the Shrike's computers. Worf and Rafi had learned the changelings had taken Picard's preserved body from Daystrom Station and removed the part of the Admiral's brain associated with Eremotic Syndrome. The quartet leaves the Shrike on the shuttle and heads to the Titan. Back on the Titan, Data regains control of the ship. On the bridge, Jack activates his device. It's not a bomb, but instead generates a force field that keeps Jack and Seven safe while the bridge opens up to eject Vedic and one of her minions into space. Both freeze to death, and Vedic cracks into pieces as she strikes against her own ship. Shaw informs Seven the opportunity to order the destruction of the Shrike. Seven conveys the command, and the changeling ship is obliterated by torpedoes. Rafi and Worf go through the ship to dispose of the remaining changelings. In the ready room, the TNG-era crew gather to review their circumstances. They note Frontier Day is only a few hours away, and they appear to be the only ones who can prevent whatever treacherous plan is to be set in motion. Hmm. Since Jack still seems to be an important key to the plan, he and Troy meet so she can serve as a guide within his vision regarding the Red Door. He tells her, He has always been fearful of looking beyond the door. Troy tells him they will face it together. However, the episode ends before they do so. (laughs) For the second week in a row. (laughs) I I agree. I was really frustrated. Uh, I'll let our um, listening audience know that when we were first watching the episode... I had uh, Gary stop it, and I said, okay, look, how many minutes are left? Because I don't want them to go through this and not reveal who Jack is. And we checked the number of minutes, and still they didn't show us what was beyond the door. No, we just saw Deanna's hand go towards the doorknob, and that was it. (laughs) That was it. Yeah. 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 All right, so let's move on to the credits. Surrender was written by Matthew Okumura. As with last week's episode, Surrender was also directed by Deborah Campmeyer. Matthew Okumura is a story editor, writer, and producer. He began his writing career in 2003 with the, the script for Fever, an episode from Smallville's second season. Most recently, Okumura has been a story editor on the first season of Leverage Redemption. Afterwards, he was a staff writer on the second season of Paramount Plus's short-lived action-adventure series, Blood and Treasure. And then Okamura was hired as a story editor for Star Trek Picard's second season. By the end of that season, he was promoted to executive story editor. This is his second screen credit for the as a writer for a Star Trek series. His first episode was episode nine from last season, Hide and Seek. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's go with the analysis. Sure. With the Titan and his crew completely in her control, Vedic begins to exercise her will to force Jack Crusher into surrendering. As bait, she dangles both the lives of the bridge crew and the promise to reveal who or what he is to the troubled young man. The theme of the episode is healing. In all three storylines, Jack and Vedic, Riker and Deanna, and Data and Lore both parties have a desire to heal themselves. To do so, they must accept a core truth that they've refused to acknowledge previously. All right, so just like last week's episode, Surrender contains several strong character elements, but ultimately it fails to maintain a compelling momentum to the narrative that was present across the first five episodes this season. Also, the editing and cinematography continue to call attention to themselves. We repeatedly cut back and forth between scenes as a substitute for real pacing, only to find nothing has changed. The lighting aboard the Titan, even before receiving damage in battle, has marked this ship as the darkest ship in Starfleet. But one of the most frustrating aspects of this episode is that we're presented with the same cliffhanger two weeks in a row. Twice, the show has teased that we would learn what is going on with Jack within next the next episode. This is the eighth episode out of ten. The glacial pace of this mystery resembles the type of storytelling more common to a soap opera, either a daytime or a nighttime soap opera, than we expect from an action-adventure series. This level of manipulation of the audience has exhausted our patience. And so let's just answer the damn question about what he is, and then let's move on and see how it plays out. Okay. Now, let's discuss some of the better parts of the episode. Okay, first we want to talk about Deanna and Will, which... um were really my favorite parts of the episode. Mm. The long-standing relationship between Will Riker and Deanna Troy has been an integral part of TNG since the pilot. The deep abiding love and sincere concern for one another would be a constant through the seven seasons, regardless of how many times one or both of them might be involved with someone else. So it's ironic that after encounter at Farpoint, the producers wanted to ignore the Riker and Troy bond completely. They had staunch opposition from the two actors who did everything they could to interject the characters' attraction for each other into any scene or line were possible. Wanting to convey that the two characters were intimate in a special way. That portrayal would give Star Trek its first important friendship between a man and a woman. On the original series, the only honest friendships featured were those between the men. The same existed for the other men of the next generation. Women may be crewmates, but they were never confidants. That's why Deanna and Will were different. This love affair holds such a special importance to us, the fans. So when it was intimated earlier in the season that the married couple 
was going through a difficult time, we knew the scenes of their reunion were going to finally have some great significance. What we didn't realize was the seriousness with which it was their problems were treated. We learned about the death of their son, Thad Riker, in season one, but it was handled better this season, similar to the way things happen in real life. Oh, yes, because most marriages don't survive the death of a child. The grief is so overwhelming. Also, both partners are suffering simultaneously, leaving them without someone to turn to for solace. In Riker's case, the underlying despair he showed after taking command of the Titan is understandable. During their experiences in the nebula, he displayed a fatalism that was out of character for someone who had survived the several life-and-death situations with the Borg, Klingons, and the Romulans. But he had never experienced the death of his own child. That's the difference. Will's fatalism is compounded by the fact that he wasn't able to grieve naturally. That ability was stripped from him by Deanna, who used her empathic powers to mute his grief, robbing him of the opportunity to fully mourn his, their loss. But as an empath, her actions were also designed to relieve herself of experiencing his pain and their daughter Kestra's along with her own. It's an act of betrayal that denies them both the ability to heal naturally. Deanna acknowledging that is the catalyst for the beginning of that process to occur. Their scenes together forces them to, to face the fact, and for longtime friends, watching them wrestle with such weighty emotional issues were we're benefited from from both the actors leaning in on their special relationship that they created on screen and that the one that has also evolved through with the characters since we first met them in 1987. All right, so let's now talk about Jack and Vedic. Vedic has had her life threatened by the entity represented by the floating head. We've seen the fear in her eyes after her last contact with it. Now that she's taken the Titan, she has every intention to complete her mission and deliver Jack Crusher to the mysterious entity as ordered. Yet, at the opening of the episode, we see Vedic reclining in the captain's seat, lighting up a cigarette. The question remains... Why is a changeling smoking? <laughs> okay. And so we're also wondering about the urgency. It's a level of nonchalance that doesn't meet the moment. But when Jack does make it to the bridge, he's caught up in Vadek's teasing him with her awareness of his life. He's lived most of his life refusing to accept who he is. She reminds Jack of the loneliness and realization that he's lived feeling he's different. The pull of finally getting some answers gets him to drop that pretense. And even though he doesn't find out before they airlock Vatic into space, he is primed to accept Deanna's help to uncover what's behind the red door in his visions. Regardless of how frightened he might be, it's the only way he can himself 
begin to heal. All right. So let's talk about data and lore. The relationship between data and lore have always played out similar to that of Cain and Abel uh, from the Bible story. Like Cain, Laura has always resented the favor and acceptance Data has received, where Laura has only engendered the fear and wrath of humans. Data has received friendship and deep affection from them. In Data Lore, the TNG episode that originally introduced Lore to us, he envies Data's life, which leads Lore to masquerade as his brother in an attempt to replace him on the Enterprise. Lore's contempt toward Data is similarly displayed in this episode, only he no longer wants to just replace him. Lore's objective is to eradicate Data from existence. The results are designed to be permanent. The erasure of data will also help to remove proof that Lore had another path he could have chosen. Lore's attempt at killing data is designed to conceal his own embarrassment at being Soong's failed experiment. Much like before, Lore was fundamentally flawed. Data's existence, all of his experiences, achievements, and friendships offer evidence that Lore's fate wasn't assured. Things could have been different, but it's actually receiving Data's memories that opens him up. The understanding Laura acquires by taking those trinkets is the true acceptance of something he denied himself when he was activated. In this way, Lord finally accepts himself and receives the healing he's been seeking all along. Now let's move on to our final thoughts. We have two episodes left. And I pray that we find out what is up with Jack finally. But I'm fearing the answer to who the big bad might be. Or what it might be. Or what it might be. (laughs) On the bridge, when Seven stayed back with Jack, Vedic looked at her and said, how fitting it is for you to witness this. I'm hoping this doesn't signal that we will end up with another season where the Borg are the big bad, as has been suggested by several other commentators. There's some other theories. Obviously, because of Jack's red eyes, there are a number of people who are suspecting that he is somehow connected to the power race. That's because Gary's also. That's but, yours. Yeah, but but you know, it's two episodes left. I'm not really going to bank on them getting something like that interesting into the show. Um, but the one that I have heard recently, which I just fell over, was that somehow the floating head is Armus, um, which you, which people might remember was the evil black oil slick from the season one. Oh, that the, killed the, Sasha the, the, Yes, yes, oh, okay. yes, yes. Somehow that is Armus because of all of the malevolence and, and, and viciousness of uh, the of the the head. They suspect that it's somehow connected, and I. I don't plausibly see that, but you know what? They could do anything in the next two episodes. Well, the remember the changes were kind of black. Maybe that's the, where they you, get it. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, this is that's that's what happens when you are dredging up 
crap from seven seasons and four movies. Okay. To, and that's just throwing Especially it in that there. first season of TNG. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm glad. Well, this is the one thing I'm glad. We don't have any fur-covered whip-welding Ferengi being considered as the big bad. <laughs> so I'm good with that. All right. We're going to move on to bits and pieces. And uh, we're doing something a little different. These We're going to talk about you know my personal likes yes. from this season. Yes. So, so uh, Gary, why don't you start off? Sure. Okay, so the first is the portrayal of Jordy LaForge this season, which I have to admit has been really good. The um, it's been a highlight. Oh yeah, yeah. The the you don't really think about how the talent of somebody like Lavar Burton, you know, until you get to see him presented with material that actually requires him to show off those talents. Yes. And this season has offered him quite a few good scenes, things that he may not have had in seven seasons of the show, though. Yeah, and my next like is the character of Sidney LaForge, another family member, uh, as performed by Ashley Sharp Chestnut. I really like the way, first of all, her character is written, and I like the way... Uh, the actor has been able to um, portray her in such a way that I, you know, that I feel like she's engaging, that she connects with the other characters. She seems as though those, uh, the other crew on the ship are people that she knows as well. Uh, so I would like to actually see more of her. Yeah, I'd like to see more of her too. In fact, I'd like to see more of her in this season. She's kind of been relegated to being in scenes in this latter half of the series, uh, but not really being relevant to the scenes. Right. Um, I agree with that. And I and I think that I really could have. They could get rid of the will they won't they shipping of her and Jack because I don't really I don't care for well that. it was a plot device it was it was a plot yeah. device because that way we got to know that he could read minds and that and then he cared enough about her that you know that that he did use a superpower to take control of her so that she wouldn't be killed yeah and so. I'm still I'm still dealing with that too <laughs> I'm not really happy about that but anyway you know I mean all that Okay. Mind reading stuff could have been done without stating that he was attracted to her or trying to hit on her in the, in the well, turbo Well, I, I didn't have an issue with it. Yeah, okay. Let, let, let's move on. Sure, let's move on. So next we want to talk about the Riker scenes. And Adele has one exception to this. Um, this is when he berated Picard on the bridge. But in actuality, for me, I think that kind of shows the depth of his despair more so than anything else that, that he might have done in those first couple episodes. Well, we just had to agree to disagree on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, him saying what he said in front of the bridge crew is a, a breach of protocol, and it probably did absolutely nothing for the morale. Right, <laughs> right, know? right. If you want... If you do not want your bridge crew to be hopeless yeah. and you want them to continue to look for solutions, you don't say that you condemned us all. Yeah, but the thing is, that's where he's at. I mean, when he finally comes back to, to Picard to apologize for his outburst, yeah. 
he says, this is the end, my old friend. You know, I mean, he he still is in that mindset. So so, so you say that to your intimate. You don't say that in front of everybody. I agree with you. I agree with you. I already said, I think that it's a breach of protocol. I just think it's, to me, it's a justifiable action by a character in the mind, in, in the state of mind that Riker has at the beginning of the series. Okay. All right, let's move on. Adele also, um, go on. Um, I like the Riker and Deanna scenes. Yes, you know, which happened. I, I think, you know, as we already talked about right. in this um, podcast, uh, I thought that they were actually well-written and well-played. Yeah. And you'll see there, if you listen to the Ready Room, there's a special featurette that they focus on their relationship yes. over the course of the shows and the films. Yes. And next up, let's talk about Amanda Plummer's portrayal of Vatic. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think back on it, there's really not a lot there, you know, as far as right. for her. To, right. it, it is the actor who has created this character, you know, much more than what was, you know, I'm sure was written on the page. And in fact, if you listen to interviews, even with Terry Matalas, he's, you know, they say that he says that, that she really has embodied Vedic, you know, when you listen to an interview with her, she talks about her process for creating this character. Well, if you've seen her in anything, you know that she's an imaginative actor. Yes. And she brings a lot to the table, you know, and if there's not a lot on the page, she will fill in. And you you can see in a lot of her idiosyncratic, you know, behavior that that, she brought that there specifically to give the character some kind of uniqueness. And yes, I just, I just don't understand the smoking. And I don't, and I don't understand the smoking. Okay, <laughs> but that's not getting in the way of us recognizing what a great no, performance. No, 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 no. And, and even like last week, last week's episode, as we had stated, you know, one of the strongest scenes was the scene where she kind of recounts. Why? The torture that she and her yes. changeling brothers and sisters endured. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I when she was gone, you really missed her presence. Yes, yes, definitely. So that when she got back, it was it was like having a you know a hungry man having a meal. You know, it was great. And and I really, although she's been playing, she's been perceived and been described as a villain. I really think that there is a legitimate argument for her to be considered you know, like a, um, an antagonist, which I wish we could put that word more into use as opposed to just talking about villains. Villains are a little too, it's a little too black and white, and that's not right. always the case. I agree with there you. There are that. nuances. You can understand her, 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 her hatred of solids right. after you understand the suffering through which she's the suffering she went through, and the fact that uh, the Federation was willing to commit genocide against absolutely, her people. absolutely, which is still an issue that should have been addressed, you know, um, in in Starfleet, you know. But then again, we forgot until this series, we've completely forgotten about right. Deep Space Nine. Okay, so another thing I have enjoyed about this season is the mystery of what Jack is, although the secret has been stretched out over too many episodes. Now, Jack, as played by... 
Ed Spillers. Is yeah, it's he's growing on me a really? little bit. Yeah. Really? Okay. But I'm not there yet as far as him being what I would call a favorite. Yeah, I uh, I know I, you're definitely not I, there. No, I'm definitely not there. <laughs> I I I've never really gotten into this character. I mean, the not the character, not, but well, but, in the story, uh-huh. I understand he's why he's there. I mean, he has been of importance in the storyline. The actor is to me, he's not compelling, and um, I think we're stuck with him if they do anything else along these lines with these characters. Unfortunately. Well, again, I, I we're gonna agree to disagree. On you that. go right ahead. I'm. I'm. We've been living that way for all of our lives. <laughs> this entire marriage. Okay. Now, next up, Adele would like to talk about Worf and Rafi as a team. I really have enjoyed their um, them being together. Now, obviously, more has been done the first part of the season than these exactly. last few episodes, uh-huh. but. I think that they make a great team, and I wouldn't mind seeing them, you know, you know, after this series in some sort of way. I agree with you. I think that that they are far more engaging as a buddy team than Rafi and Seven were. Oh, last year, but I mean, yes. But then again, they actually go on missions that are successful. They right. they execute them, and then they and they make sense. <laughs> they make yeah. sense, you know. Which was never the case last season. Um, yeah, I just, I, but, you know, they're like a cleanup crew. You just send them in to do what they're going to do. I will, I'm going to say this again. I don't understand why you go onto a ship with a bunch of creatures that can change shapes and you bring knives. I don't get that. <laughs> I don't get that. I don't get that. Yeah. And then, and then why do the, the, the changes take out knives? I mean. Why don't they just use their why, weapons? Why, why do the changeling take out yeah, knives? Yeah. So. I mean. And, 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 then, and then we see that Worf and Rafi do have. Weapons because they then then, vaporize them after they stab them. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, anyway. We're we're just going to move on. And and then the last bits and pieces of Adele's likes from season three. Is that um, I like the betrayal of seven and nine. It's it's, it's written much better uh, this season than last season. Uh, but of course, that's a low bar. Last season was definitely a low, low bar. In fact, both Jerry Ryan as seven and Michelle Hurd as Rafi were wasted last season. Yeah, well, that's pretty obvious. No, no, no. I mean, if you give um, just Jerry Ryan something to do, right. she'll bring it to you. Yeah, and- she really is a fine actress. And. You know, when when she was on Voyager and them putting her in those skin tight cat suits, cat suits with heels. Yes, I mean that was you know insulting uh, to her as an actor, and also beneath you know the producers of Voyager Obviously that they not. felt that that was <laughs> um, necessary for them to create a compelling. Uh, character that we would want to watch every week. Uh, so, well, one of those people that did it to her would eventually become her husband. So. Her husband, and then, <laughs> but that that marriage did not last long. No, no, it didn't. But I mean, but what you find is, I mean, th- there's a through line. I mean, 
look, we love Star Trek, but there's a through line from the original series about them using women and women's bodies as eye candy. And it's really this current era of Star Trek that has has avoided doing that. Right. You know, so. um, But yeah, I mean, the fact that she's seen as a three dimensional character, she's given things to do. We actually are interested in her perspectives and the friction between her and Shaw right. has, has actually been for me the most interesting thing about that relationship. Yes. Even though you know, for a captain of a ship, he's not really much of a captain. Everybody kind of gives everybody else orders. Well, maybe his calling really is engineering. <laughs> but then let's put him in engineering because you know he sure as hell for a guy that's supposed to be in charge of a ship, he really isn't much of a commander. Anyway. All right. So now we're going to move on to Star Trek news. And the first thing up in Star Trek news is the Ready Room. The latest installment of the Ready Room began with a featurette on the android characters of Data and Lore, as played by Brent Spiner. And then Will Wheaton conducted a in-studio interview with Spiner. The episode also ended with a featurette on Riker and Troy's relationship that we had just referenced, where they do talk about the fact that the producers did want to kill the notion that they had a romantic relationship right. and some special bond. The In the very next episode, <laughs> after the pilot, you yeah. know, they wanted to just kind of squelch that. Uh, it also featured a trailer for next week's episode entitled Vox. All right. We're going to do some merchandising news. We haven't done that for a while. XO6 teases the new First Contact action figure. Ahead of First Contact Day, Star Trek collectible manufacturer XO6 teased their next one to six scale museum grade action figure in the First Contact collection. And that is Worf in, in, in the EV suit. This fine collectible figure is a perfect re- rendition of the Starfleet Klingon and a great addition to any Star Trek 1-6 scale figure collection. The XO6 First Contact line includes the previously released Captain Jean-Luc Picard figure and Lieutenant Commander Data figure. Yeah, it's, and that, that Data's got two heads. It's got, <laughs> yeah. it's got the one before um, the Borg Queen starts giving him flesh on his face mm. and the one afterwards. And so his hair's kind of miffed and whatnot. Uh, the XO616 scale wolf collectible will incorporate lights into the suit and the helmet, just like the original from the film. And so pre-orders and additional figure details will probably be released by XO6 at a later date. So if you're into collectibles, that might be one you want to put on your shelf. Okay. Next up, Corgi UK announces plans for new Star Trek Starship model. UK-based Corgi is returning to Trek merchandise with new plans for die-cast Starship models. Announced on their Facebook page, the Corgi team shared that they have the rights to all Star Trek, so nothing is off the table, and that their sizing plans are 8 inches for Constitution class as a ballpark idea, making their planned releases a bit larger than the Eagle Moss Starship models many collectors are familiar with. 
Corgi first beamed into the Star Trek universe in 1982 with a small line of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan die-cast models. The company returned in 2006 for the franchise's 40th anniversary, once again releasing a small line of Starship replica models, including the original Enterprise, a Klingon Bird of Prey, and the Enterprise-D. At this point, no formal announcement has been made on specific product listings or as to where or if their ships will be available for purchase if you live in the United States and Canada. Yeah, so there's not a lot of detail, but they try to get out there. And I sense that, you know, there are some of our fans I know that are collectors of the Eagle Moss replicas, Mm -hmm. which, you know, they went bankrupt. I think that... I thought this might be something they might be interested in knowing about and maybe uh, purchasing. All right. So next up is uh, the Star Trek pod directive. The the pod directive recently dropped another new episode. Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins interviewed comedians and married couple, as, as well as friends of the host, Moshe Kasser and Natasha Leggero. Uh, they discussed what happens when a Trek fan marries someone who couldn't care less about Star <laughs> Trek and listen in as Tawny Paul Moshe introduced Natasha to the classic DS9 episode, Trials and Tribulations. You know what she called that, right? She she referenced the tribbles like gremlins. Oh. Because that was her that was her frame of reference <laughs> but they're nothing like dr- gremlins they're they're just as bad though oh well that's another point where we're going to i can't to stand i can't stand I love those tribbles. i can't stand tribbles so in closing we'll be back next week with our analysis of vox episode nine of star trek picard season three where we will find out what the hell is going on with jack okay we hope <laughs> Before we sign off, we would like to thank you for your support of this podcast. The podcast has been around since September 2017, and our full catalog of episodes include analysis of their of every episode of Star Trek Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds, as well as reviews of the short treks and several special topic shows. We appreciate those of you who have shared a link of Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment over iTunes for us. It can help us um, attract attention and new listeners. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. At Facebook at Facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD. At our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, other interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show if you have any questions or requests at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. (laughs) 